I would invite you, if you would like to, to turn in your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 10. As we consider tonight how it is that God intends for us to change. Change is kind of a dirty word, um, particularly around churches sometimes. We don't like change very much. Um, I will confess to you that I'm not a person who, who likes a lot of change. I like routine. I think I may have told you that every Christmas, uh, one side of my family gets together at Aunt Vera's house now, Aunt Vera went to be with the Lord in 2003 or so, but we, her house is still there and the family still has it. And we get there, we get together there at Aunt Vera's house, and I love sitting in the same seat on the same couch next to the same uncle and looking at the same book, which is the history of Yadkin County, North Carolina, the historical society put together an account. And this book, Aunt Vera, before she passed away, annotated the, the book. And she wrote all of her little comments in the margins, and she even struck through certain sentences that she found to be historically inaccurate because she wanted to set the record straight. I like routine, and, and I don't like a lot of change. But I think that if we look to the Scriptures, we can see that from beginning to end, our lives in Christ are lives of change. You think about what happens when you become a Christian. Think about the language that the Bible uses to talk about what happens to us when we become a Christian. One picture is in John chapter 3, the new birth. This language was so confounding, so confusing to the people who heard Jesus. They didn't understand, you know, Jesus, am I supposed to go back into my mother's womb again? He, and Jesus essentially says, no, but what happens to you in conversion, what happens to you when you become a Christian is so profound, it's like starting life over again. Sanctification is this process of growing in grace you know, as a tree grows, it does change. It grows in size, begins to shed more and more leaves. I would imagine that years ago, the leaves in the, in the trees at the parsonage, maybe there weren't quite as many of them. That would have been a good day to live in, where there weren't quite as many leaves falling off of those trees. But I've got my dad here in town this week, and so he's taking care of them. And uh, so the Christian life from beginning to end is one big story of change. Listen to what Jay Adams has said. I've got this in the very first little paragraph up at the top. Christians should never fear change. They must believe in change so long as the change is oriented toward godliness. The Christian life is a life of continual change. As I just said, salvation is called the new birth. We are also told in the Scriptures that we have passed from death to life. That's a fairly big change, to pass from death 
to life. The rest of our life is sanctification, which is ongoing growth and change. 2 Corinthians chapter 3 tells us that this will happen from one degree of glory to another. We're being transformed into the image of the one that we follow. And then we have this great this great verse of hope in Philippians chapter 1, as, as Philippians opens, a verse that some churches in their counseling rooms, in their counseling centers, I know of one church that in their counseling center, this verse is on the wall so that everyone who walks in, this is the first thing that they see. He who has begun a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. If God has begun a work in us, He is doing a work in us now, and He will bring that work to completion. Uh, furthermore, we learn from Galatians 3.3, and I just, uh, I'll read this, that the same grace that saved us, God intends to use for our growth. It says in Galatians 3.3, are you so foolish? Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? What this verse is saying is that, yes, God has saved you by His resurrection power. Yes, He has saved you by His grace. He has not left you alone at that moment. I'm afraid we, we become very discouraged when we think, okay, yeah, the Bible's a book about salvation, and every time Brother Greg gets up in the, in the pulpit, he talks about getting saved, and, I, and, and then after that, is God just, I mean, did he, does he just kind of depart from us, or does he intend to walk with us and to change us and to make us into something new? What about the areas of my own heart that I see that need to change? Is there a plan for that? Does God have any kind of strategy for rooting out of me the residue of the old man. There's a lot of Greg that is still in Greg from the old man. And God, I believe the Scriptures teach, is doing a daily work of, of uprooting those, those weeds um, in all believers. And this should give us hope that God will finish the work that He starts. When we die or when Jesus returns, the Scriptures say we will be glorified. This is just yet another change that will happen to us. The new birth at the beginning, sanctification in all the years between, and glorification at the end when we are transformed into His likeness. We'll be free, finally, from the brokenness, the sin, the temptations that we now experience. What does God's plan look like? I don't pretend to be able to offer all of the answer that you could give tonight, but here's part of the answer, a big part of the answer. Um, these are things that I use. I'm not you know, the, the best or most experienced or most skilled counselor around, but I believe the Bible presents itself as a book about Life change. How God changes us from one end to the other. So how does it happen right now? Tomorrow morning when I wake up, how will God change me 
take me from where I am to where I need to be. Maybe you know of a sin pattern in your life, or, a, or, or, or even if we don't want to speak of, of a sin pattern, like in the sense of a willful, man, I just can't get out of this rut. Maybe it's just kind of a, you know, a, a personality thing about you that, that you really want to change. Of course, we would call it sin to become easily frustrated or, or, or quick-tempered, something like that. But, but um, maybe there's some kind of pattern in your life and you want to know, how does God's grace, how does the gospel impact this area of my life that needs to experience change? I think God gives power and, and the answer comes in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, or part of the answer. But let me give a little background before that, before I read this passage. What's going on in 1 and 2 Corinthians is a conversation back and forth between Paul and a church, a church that was disordered. Uh, I, I, I never, I, I'm not saying this to be critical, but I never have fully understood churches that want to call that they want to name themselves Corinth Baptist Church or Corinth whatever uh, because Corinth was not exactly a model example of what a church needs to be they were experiencing some issues right and what's happening in 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians we're getting that those are two letters that are part of a of a back and forth between Paul and this church. And so we don't have some of that conversation, but we have two of Paul's letters, if that makes sense, to the church. And there's a difference. If you've ever read through 1 Corinthians and then through 2 Corinthians, there's a difference in tone. 1 Corinthians, he's having to deal with some serious issues. He, he's applying bandages to a bleeding wound. He's having to, to uproot some stuff or else it's going to kill the church. And his tone is fairly direct when he speaks to them. And then in 2 Corinthians, he comes as, okay, you, your wound is sore, right? Your wound is sore. We've applied the bandage and now we're going to apply the balm. And he comes gently, I think both tones are appropriate at different times, but we see both of them in 1st and 2nd Corinthians. Sometimes Paul came on strongly, and in 2nd Corinthians you see him almost saying, uh, not, not apologizing for what he said, but basically saying, I wish I could come and be there in person so that you could hear my voice instead of just reading my letters. Have you ever had a misunderstanding through a text message or through an email? Sometimes the tone in text doesn't quite come across like the tone in person. Here's what we learn. Why don't we just, let's just read these words together, beginning in verse 1, to get a little bit of the feel for what's going on. 2 Corinthians chapter 10. I, Paul, myself entreat you. So he's, he's pleading with them, right? Listen to the tone. By the meekness and gentleness of Christ... He's trying to tell him, I know you can't hear my voice, but I, I promise you, I'm coming to you humbly right now. I who am humble when face to face with you, but bold to you when I am away. Right? Seems like my letters come across bold, but, but I promise you, think of me in the way that I am when you've seen me face to face. That's my heart right now, he's saying to you. And then he says this, this word beg in verse 2, I beg of you that when I am present, I may not have to show boldness with such confidence as I count on showing against someone 
Some who suspect uh, suspect us of walking according to the flesh. For though we walk in the flesh, in other words, we walk in these bodies, we have to go to day jobs and we have to feed our our stomachs and, and raise our crops and whatever. Though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. Listen to how the language is very intentional here. For the weapons, listen to the imagery, waging war, weapons, for the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but they have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ, being ready to punish every disobedience when your disobedience is complete. So look at how Paul tells these people that change happens. The first direction he gives them is that he's saying, friends, we have to understand the battle if we're going to win the war. We have to understand the kind of battle that we are in. We have to understand our situation. One thing that you know, police and, and folks in the military are always trying to sharpen is their situational awareness. Understand the nature of the situation you're in. He says, while we walk in the flesh, our deepest problems are spiritual. The enemy prowls around like a roaring lion. First Peter says, seeking someone to devour. Understand the kind of situation that we're in. I love uh, World War II uh, history. Uh, of course, we don't love the war. It was a very bleak and, and uh, regrettable event. Um, but I love reading about the history. Um, I read a lot of World War II battle narrative. One of the things that is always drawn out in a lot of these books, is uh, talking about the mistakes of the French in the, the period of time between the two great wars, between the two world wars. Um, while uh, they were in these years, the French decided they were never going to let the Germans invade like they had in World War I. And so what they did is they constructed this series of fortifications on their eastern border. It bordered a number of countries, all the way up to Belgium, all the way down to the south. Of course, bordered Germany, but it was called the Maginot Line. It was a series of bunkers. And, and honestly, they, they tried to create a kind of military wall on their, on their eastern border. Um, it extended 280 miles. And it was just a, a vast investment of their finances and, and, and manpower, there was just two problems with it. The first problem was it reflected old thinking, World War I thinking. They thought that the next war will be just like the last. That if the Germans are going to come in again, they're going to come in the same way that they did last time. And so what did they do? When the Maginot Line got near the Ardennes Forest, they thought there's no way they're coming through the Ardennes. They can't bring their tanks through that thick forest, so we'll make the Maginot Line weak there. We won't spend all of our time and money there. 
Well, then the Germans decided, yes, they would come through the Ardennes, right? And so at the very place where they were weakest, at the very place where they were defenseless, the enemy attacked. It's a lesson for us. Where are you weak? Where am I weak? Um, We are engaged in a spiritual war. And if we do not understand the type of battle that we are in, the enemy will eat our lunch. He, 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 He will work his... His, his means in our, in our lives at our weakest point. But the Bible gives us hope about the nature of our weapons. Look what it says in verse 4. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but they have divine power to destroy strongholds. This is intended to give us confidence. In other words, there is a a distinctively Christian way of fighting battle. There is a distinctively Christian way about changing. Like While the world may have a kind of behaviorism, we can change our behaviors or maybe change our thinking, the Bible says that God intends to change us at a deeper level, on the heart level to bring about a deep and lasting transformation. It is by degrees, but it is more profound because our weapons are different. They have divine power. The Word of God does the work of God. God has not left us without the tools. For 2 Peter 1.3 says that God has given us everything that pertains to life and godliness. In other words, so God hasn't just saved us and told us now do the best you can, right? You're on your own now. I've, I've, saved, I've punched your ticket to heaven. Now that should be enough to keep you happy until you die. Well, he also intends to walk with us and to, to give us what we need between now and then. Look at the nature of our war. Because he, he leaves us off right there in verse 4 with something very interesting. He says, The weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. Now, what are these strongholds? He tells us in the very next verse. We destroy arguments. What is a stronghold? It's an argument. It's an idea. It says it's a lofty opinion. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God. In other words, the ruts that we often get into, not every challenge that we face, but many of the challenges that we face, are arguments. It's like a set of logic that gets into our mind and gets into our heart from the hand of the enemy, and he tries to convince us of certain things that are contrary to the Scriptures. Think about any time that you have ever sinned. Any time that you have ever sinned, you have only ever done it after rationalizing it in your mind. It made sense in your mind before your hands did it, right? Or before your mouth said it. That was an argument. I justified it in my mind before I did it with my hands. He says, we destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God. 
Every life-dominating problem arises from false ideas about who God is, who we are, or how God's world works. The enemy is at work in our minds and in our hearts trying to convince us that the world is not like the Bible says it is. That God is not who he says he is and that we are not who God says we are. And I don't know how it might work for you to, uh, when, when, um, when you slip into a disobedience. Do you reason maybe you, you deserve this indulgence? Or, or do you rationalize that other people do far worse, so, so this is okay? Or, or is it something else? Maybe your expectations of your spouse are, are unrealistic, or, and you're just not relating to them the way that God relates to you in the gospel. Or do you labor under condemnation for sin because you sense wrongly, falsely, that God is angry with you? That's, a, that's, a, that's, a, that's an argument. That's a lofty opinion that, that the enemy has sown into your heart to try to get you to feel condemnation that Romans 8.1 says you should not because of what Christ has done on the cross. All, many of the problems that we face arise from allowing worldly ideas or unbiblical ideas to to be sown in the soil of our heart and crop up and produce fruit that makes life difficult. We are sponges, honestly. We we unwittingly even, we absorb the, the notions of the world. And if we're not careful... Our lives will be affected by the, by the unbiblical ideas and, and arguments and lofty opinions that we, that we pick up that run counter to the biblical worldview. But the reality is our relationship with God and with others will, be, will, will suffer if we haven't taken these thoughts captive, these arguments captive, these lofty opinions captive. And that's the solution. Notice the language. He's, he's used a lot of strong language here. Warfare, battle, right? Arguments, destroying them. These things that are pridefully raised up against the knowledge of, of God. It says in, in the second part of verse 5, and we take every thought captive. This is warfare language. This is taking prisoners here, putting them in a jail cell. When we identify these thoughts that are, that, that are meant to discourage us or meant to lead us towards sin or meant to give us condemnation over sins that Christ has paid for on the cross, it says we are supposed to take these thoughts captive. And then look in verse 6, being ready to punish every disobedience when your obedience is complete. I don't know if you've had this experience, but when I was a teenager, I was always encouraged to take, you know, take, take my thoughts captive. I remember hearing my youth pastor teach on this and a, a couple of family members saying, you know, uh, you just need to take those thoughts captive. But I never really knew, like practically on the ground, how do you do that? I wish that I had a little jail cell that I could put them in. That would be very nice. But how, what does it mean? What does it mean to take these thoughts captive? I got four little little steps. The best way that I know, this this is what I do in in my life when, when these unbiblical ideas 
crop up in my heart. The first step is to identify them. This is a rebel thought. This is a lofty opinion. This is an argument from the enemy. Identify it. Thoughts that run contrary to the teachings of Scripture. We have to know the Scriptures in order to do that. We have to be immersed in the Bible. And then the second part, and this is where a little bit of, we kind of have some maturity to be able to, to know this, recognizing the biblical response to these thoughts. Satan begins to give you condemnation over things that happened 10 and 15 years ago. You've taken them to Christ. You've reconciled with your brother or sister. Still, you feel that condemnation. Say, no, Lord, I'm, what's happening in my heart right now is I'm setting up a new gospel. I'm not relating to my sin. I'm not relating to my past the way that you relate to it. God, forgive me. I repent. Would you help me to believe the truth in Romans 8.1 that there is no condemnation for, for those who are in Christ Jesus? Or maybe it's some kind of, maybe it's some kind of anger. And, and, and you realize, I got, I got unduly angry with a family member today, and I, I need to go back to them and, and respond to them. But what is anger? Anger, of course, is a twisted sense of justice. God has given us a sense of justice, but then we determine that we are the judge. So we get to get angry in this moment. And Lord, I, for a moment today, I may have been provoked, but that's no excuse. For a moment today... I thought that I was judge. I thought that I was somebody and, and my preferences were transgressed and so I decided to get back at the one who frustrated me. But I confess now that you are the only one uh, who, who is the good judge. You're the only one who really deserves to get angry. Forgive me, God. Would you give me grace to change? Praying a prayer of repentance and realignment and Asking God for grace to change. It's, it's, it's important to mention, at least in passing here, the Greek word for repentance means a change of mind. That's why I think this process is important. When, when we identify these rebel thoughts and these rebel heart attitudes that crop up inside of us, taking them to Jesus right then, re- identifying them for what they are, recognizing what the Bible says about them, asking God to help us to change our mind, asking God to help us to to repent, to take these thoughts captive, and then asking God, God, would you give me grace to change? Would you make me gentler with this family member or this person that I work with? Would Would you make me gentler next time? And notice the the language here, the attitude that we are supposed to have toward these rebel thoughts. Just to the language Paul uses. He says, take every thought captive, but then he says, being ready to punish them. Their disobedience is complete. We're not to merely brush them aside. We are to make war against them. These ideas, these these lofty opinions, we're to punish while we may not even have chosen them, right? Many times thoughts just come into our minds because we're broken sinners. We're just Genesis 3 folks. We're still responsible to discharge them biblically. We are to stand guard at the gatehouse of our hearts and minds, checking the ID of every notion, every belief, doctrine, every strategy to make sure that it aligns with Scripture. And here's why. Satan is playing for keeps. He desires to establish a beachhead in our minds through these lofty opinions, 
through these, these attitudes and, and arguments. And if we're not careful, they will burn our house down. James says it begins with a desire, it grows into an action, and it leads to death. We need to treat these things as if they are home intruders. We are not our own. We have been bought with a price. I just want to direct your attention to, to a couple of resources. Um, and, and the first is, is the paper that I... Um, the worksheet that I have developed here. A couple of years ago, I was counseling a young man who was a believer, and he had just been in a life-dominating kind of sin pattern. Um, he was really struggling with an addiction to pornography and things like that, and he, he just he did, he couldn't see he couldn't see a way out. And um, uh, counseled with him for a while, and one of the thoughts that he was really just struggling with was, you know, I've been in this pattern for too long to change, so what's the use in even trying anymore? And, um, and so I just used that thought as an example for how to go through, how to, how to take these rebel thoughts. That's not true. God is a God of change. He's a God of redemption. He's a God of restoration. He's a God that brings His resurrection power to bear on our lives. So the story is never over for any of us. There's, there's never any, anything that God can't redeem us from. And so I, I, with him, we walked through some of these, and his sheet would look a little different than, than yours might. But this one, it, we, we wrote down the thought in the far left column. And I, forgive me, I know the, the, the font is very small because I wanted the, you know, it, it to be able to be big enough to be used for multiple thoughts. But I've been in this pattern for too long to change. Well, the first step is to, is to ask, what is this actually saying about God? When we believe in our heart that I've, I've been in this too long to change, we're believing that God is not able. We're believing that my situation is too unique for God. It's actually kind of prideful. God has never encountered a sinner like me. He's never encountered a problem like mine. He doesn't intend for me to change, it even says. So we identify, what is this thought saying about God? What is the heart issue at the root? What's well, unbelief in God's power or His goodness? God's ability or His willingness? It believes something wrong about God to say, I can't change. Then next, what's the biblical reply? Well, God gives power to change. He, as Creator and as Savior, He is able and willing to help. Where do we learn this in the Bible? Well, 2 Corinthians 12.9. 2 Corinthians 12.9 I do not want, uh, uh, 12.9 says, My grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. Yes, you may feel weak, but that doesn't mean that God is weak. 1 Corinthians 10.13, whenever there's a temptation, God will provide a way of escape. 1 Thessalonians 4.3, which I honestly am not remembering right now. 1 Thessalonians 4.3, see what it says. This is the will of God, your sanctification. What is God's will for us? That we would be changed. So it is against the Bible to say that I can't get out of this pattern. I can't change. Because the Bible says that God's will for us is that we would become more like Jesus. And then what would a prayer look like? A prayer in response to this thought, 
As we're taking our thoughts captive, we're trying to reinterpret them, we're trying to discharge them biblically. Thoughts may come into our mind, but they're not going to leave without being checked by the Bible. It says, Lord, I acknowledge that you are powerful enough to help me and that you are willing to do so. Forgive me for unbelief in this area and, and forgive me for entertaining these defeatist thoughts that try to excuse me from fighting. Give me grace to change. That would be one example. I don't know what your map might look like, what the thoughts are that come into your mind, but I hope this little resource might be, might be a part of your strategy to take thoughts captive and to ask God, would you bring change? Lord, would you help me to see some change? Friends, that's all that I have tonight, but I would say to you, Dr. Jim Neuheiser uh, has written a little book about this topic. It's uh, called I Want to Change. It's just a little mini book about how the gospel changes us. And I'm sure that uh, he um, is a lot better, uh, is a lot more articulate than I am. It goes into more depth. I have two copies of it. Uh, if you would like one of those, you can come pick it up right here on your way out. Um, since this has been more of a teaching time, I'll just ask if there are any questions.